0: Thank you so much for coming, and thanks especially to people who are watching this live stream. I want to start today with three vignettes. Overcome by enemies, my gaze darts to the air, and in a rush of motion as I fly towards my partner, my heartbeat quickens. My giant companion takes a leap, lands on a platform, and it falls apart under its feet. My hands shake as I become suddenly aware of how vulnerable I am. I am startled suddenly from the quiet rhythms of piano music and a horse's hooves along the path by the flapping of bird wings just ahead. When we talk about pleasures to be found in playing video games, we often talk about power, control, agency, responsibility, and fun. But these experiences aren't covered by these sensations. And although the experiences I just described were pleasurable for me, I would not describe them as fun, exactly. So what framework can we use to talk about the ways that games can make it pleasurable to lose control, be vulnerable, and rely on others? How do games render these sensations on a formal level, and what does it mean that we seek them out? The aim of my thesis is to use the notion of intimacy as a way to center these forms of pleasure and their potential for video games. I want to read three contemporary AAA games. AAA is Hollywood for games. Uh, Overwatch, The Last Guardian, and The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, for three different modes of intimacy. Uh, And I want to also consider the potential of video games in particular to create intimate affects. So, first I want to define what I mean by intimacy and what I mean by an intimate affect. Now, colloquially, I think we all think of intimacy as maybe describing a usually romantic relationship between two usually human individuals. This is not what I'm doing. Uh, I want to think of intimacy as a sort of affect that generates certain sensations in players. So I'm going to give like a really quick and dirty intro to affect theory uh, to give you an idea of what I mean. Deleuze and Guattari describe affect as follows. They say to the relations composing, decomposing, or modifying an individual, their correspond intensities that affect it, augmenting or diminishing its power to act. So affects are the capacity that something has to, be, uh, to affect and be affected by other things. Affects name the valences of the relationships between things that exist in the world, between objects, between people and objects, animals, um, machines, sort of like an emotional potential energy that circulates. Uh, Affect theory becomes a way to read for form in games by understanding the potential that that certain formal elements, temporalities, forms of movement, have to render certain sensations. So following Aubrey Annable in her recent book, Playing with Feelings, Video Games and Affect, Aubrey says, quote, I read video games not as containers of and for affects that float around between bodies and things, but rather as media that have specific affective dimensions legible in their images, algorithms, temporalities, and narratives that can be interpreted or analyzed. So this formal system allows us to examine the forces a game world exerts on the player on a formal level as potentially containing intimate affects. Now, when I say intimate affects, what I mean is that certain sort of relations within the space or certain forms of movement through space become imbued with intimacy. So all kinds of relations within the world can take on intimate affects. Even when we think of intimate relationships (laughs) in a colloquial romantic sense, the sort of intimacy of a relationship you have with a person is borne out through other relations with objects, gifts, places, or other people. So with all that, what do I mean when I say an intimate affect? What kinds of sensations does intimacy generate? And here I want to draw from Lauren Berlant and Nancy Youssef. I consider intimacy as a sort of precarious, synchronous orientation in the present. It's made pleasurable, pleasurable and terrifying by the sensation of nakedness the revealing of oneself or vulnerability. Some core sensations to intimacy are vulnerability, precarity, a sensation of proximity or distance and awareness of distance. Intimacy is fragile. The threat of embarrassment, humiliation, and disappointment always linger at its edges. Sometimes intimacy becomes so unbearable that it can be easier to end an intimate moment than to remain vulnerable inside of it. Intimacy can be cultivated over years but it can also be unexpected. You can be thrown into intimate moments unintentionally. And intimacy has different valences. You're on a subway, alone, a stranger walks in and sits across from you, you lock eyes. This can be intimate. You're sitting in the morning with an old friend having coffee and you laugh about an in-joke that neither of you mentioned. This can also be intimate, but these intimacies are very different. So in my thesis, I wanna look at three different valences of intimacy. In the first chapter, I consider Overwatch and the intimacy of synchronicity. Uh, In the second chapter, I consider The Last Guardian and the intimacy of frustration. And in my third chapter, I am going to look at The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, and the intimacy of overwhelmingness. And today in this presentation, we're going to talk about all three, along with, I forgot to introduce my special guests, the Moblin from Zelda, Breath of the Wild, and a bird from Overwatch. Uh, It was requested by certain anonymous lab mates that I do this presentation on cosplay. Uh, This was the compromise. (laughs) <laughs> so, Overwatch. Uh, Overwatch is a team-based multiplayer online first-person shooter released by the game company Blizzard Activision in 2016. When it was released, one of the most immediately popular and powerful combinations was that of rocket launching soldier Farrah and angelic healer Mercy. Who These two characters, uh, both women, were immediately shipped by fans as a romantic couple, shipping is when you support uh, romantic pairing of two characters with fan art or on forums in um, sort of fan communities. For these fans, it seems like in-game synergy equates to romantic chemistry. And this is where I sort of started this chapter and in fact this thesis more broadly. What does it mean that fans look at it this way? Uh, how does the in-game synergy between Kara and Mercy translate to a kind of in this chapter, I understand the flows of gameplay involved in playing as part of a and mercy combination as creating intimate modes of effective engagement. So I read the ways that you engage a partnership on either side of it and understand how it works together, when it works well and when it doesn't. Mercy is a support character, she's a doctor. This means that she heals and buffs teammates, uh, so strengthens their abilities, Um, Her offensive abilities are extremely limited, even compared to other supports, she's not very able to um, attack other characters and, and harm them easily. So she focuses on helping her team. She has the unique ability, as depicted here, to fly to teammates to escape danger or to go where she's needed. Mercy gameplay is defined by a precarious relationship to space. She's dependent on being able to see her teammates in order to fly to them, So, one very common experience for Mercy players is when your team goes away and you can't see any of them, you can't move very quickly and you become vulnerable to enemy fire and you die. With good team support, Mercy uh, is fast and mobile and can move all across the map, and without team support she becomes sluggish and fragile. in short, playing as mercy, encourages a mode of affective engagement characterized by a c- attention and care, attunement to others' needs and to threats, and a sort of vulnerability implied by the process of trusting others to be there when needed. On the other side, we have Farah, who is an offensive glass cannon, uh, what's called a DPS character. So she focuses on hurting the other team. She has a unique affinity for air support. She is the only character who can fly and float in the air on her own. She often deals heavy damage to enemies with her rockets and then sets them up to be uh, killed by teammates on the ground. So she sets up kills, but she has trouble following through on them because of how slowly her rocket fires. In short, playing as Farah involves making quick and dangerous plays, but also having a certain amount of caution to pull back from engagements before she's killed. There's a sense of vulnerability to the team and reliance on the team that stands in contrast with other offensive characters like Soldier 76 or Reaper, who can make kills more independently than Farah can? So I traced out a few sort of forms of affective risk that you might engage in when playing with either Farah or Mercy, and when they play together, these risks are mitigated. In the air, Farah makes a good escape for Mercy. She's almost always visible, so it's easy for Mercy to fly to her if she gets overrun by t- by um, opponents. And uh, Farrah also provides a vantage point that gives Mercy a visibility over the rest of the team, so she can fly back to the rest of the team. This creates a sort of anchoring point where Mercy might go elsewhere, but she always comes back to Farrah. Mercy, on her part, provides healing and buffing for Farrah, so that Farrah can sustain engagements and follow through on kills. Farrah becomes more secure, powerful, and reliable, and Mercy becomes more mobile and has a safe place to go. This creates a sort of flow of gameplay where Effective Mercy-Farah players push together, retreat together, and regroup together. It becomes a sort of synchronous flow of gameplay that encourages both players to rely heavily on each other and anticipate and nullify threats to one another. But the combination is always precarious. Farah and Mercy are always in danger of falling out of step. Without Farah visible and available to her, Mercy becomes confined to the ground and easily isolated from her teammates. And without Mercy healing her, Farah becomes vulnerable to enemy kills and unable to sustain engagements as effectively. Even when they work well on a team together, they become isolated from the rest of their team when they move effectively, which can cause a lot of frustration on the part of the other four players who play on the team. And, even when they're together, their movements in the air are shaky and bumpy and precarious and always in danger falling to the ground. The disorienting flight patterns and fragile dependencies of the fair mercy combination often lead not to success-oriented pleasure, but to failure, asynchronous movement and frustration. And this is what I think of as the intimacy of synchronicity. Sort of a present temporality-oriented form of flowing synchronously with another body in space. It's always in danger of falling out of step. It's easy to think of intimacy as a positive aspect. You know, we think of romance, safety, and comfort when we use that term. But precarity and the negative aspects of vulnerability are crucial to intimacy as well. And this is what I explore in my second chapter. So in Overwatch, the negative sensations are always sort of lingering at the edges. But what happens when intimacy is defined by negative sensations? Not by a sort of free-flowing, precarious synchrony, but by a frustration of sluggishness and incapacity. The Last Guardian is a single-player adventure game released in 2016 that follows the relationship between an unnamed young boy, you can see up there, and a giant griffin-like creature called Trico. The player controls the boy and must negotiate with Trico who has fears, needs, wants, and who doesn't always listen or follow directions as they navigate through the highly vertical ruins of some ancient technologically advanced civilization. The game was praised, especially for the sort of complex relationship it created between the boy and Trico almost entirely through gameplay as opposed to dialogue. But some criticized how Trico doesn't follow orders. One Polygon reviewer wrote, If the main character annoys because he moves exactly as you'd expect a little boy to, then Trico annoys because it acts exactly as you'd expect a cat to act. It makes for a realistic depiction of my favourite house pet, but it's terrible gameplay. Now I think there's a sort of broader tension here with the idea of losing control and gains, with having to wait and be patient and accommodating. And I think that this is especially complicated because we're talking about a human-animal relationship here. So we need to unpack this. What is intimate? What's revealed about intimacy by a frustrating encounter with an animal defined by helplessness and waiting? So I read The Last Guardian for an intimacy defined by frustration, slowness, and the inability to move properly. The Lasperdean understands the intimacy, is always frustrating, never quite liberating or powerful, as a negotiation that's never quite resolved, but perhaps the negotiation itself is pleasurable. So the two bodies that move through space together are both defined by their inability to do things quite right. The boy has a tremendously hard time affecting the world around him. He's always stumbling, falling over, tripping over himself. He has to pull switches and he has to put his whole body into it, it takes him a full second to do so. He's really quite bad at doing those things. Uh, even the slightest sort of jump will like fall over onto his face. Uh, meanwhile, if right, the boy is tremendously sort of sensitive to the world and can't affect it at all. Trico is defined by the way that it always affects the world no matter what it does. Trico sort of barrels through the space, knocking things over, frequently destroying entire segments of the ruins. So neither of them can quite fit through the space. Trico is too big. It always sort of knocks things over and ruins everything. While the boy struggles to get to high places, climb upstairs, and make it across sort of these long gaps. Now, this is a linear game, which means that you can't explore the world too much. There's always only one sort of direction you can go. But the way this linearity is experienced through the design of the space is such that you think it's linear because of the limited ways that Trico and the boy can move through it. So there's always only one way you can fit through the space. It's not that the space is sort of a single lane that you move through. It's that there's other entrances. You see other places where you could go if only you could fit, but you can't. The result of this is a sense of desperation and hyper-awareness of the bodies of the boy and Trico. So players are always made to ask, where can I go? Where can I fit? But the massive scale of the space, the sort of intense verticality of it, also means that closing the distance is given a particular affective weight. Um, so this, I found this gif um, of maybe one of my favorite moments in the game when the boy has to jump across a great chasm to get to Trico. And this happens several times, this sort of temporal structure, where time slows down as the boy jumps. You go into slow motion, the sort of whooshing sound that you would hear falling through the air becomes almost mechanical sounding. And then you just begin to get a sense of how far you will fall and where you will land on the ground, like hundreds of feet down, before Trico's head appears or its tail appears. You grab it, it grabs you. Time returns to normal and everything becomes quiet as you are lifted to a safe space. This entire scene, the architecture of the space, the structure of time, is anchored around this sort of moment of extended precarity, a moment that emphasizes the boy's inability to cross the gap on his own. So you have these sort of bloated, intense, precarious moments, but then you have these long stretches of waiting, uh, this is a really popular gif that was circulated around the time the game came out um, The boy can issue commands to Trico which are entirely sort of gestural But the commands aren't always consistent as to what they mean or as to how uh, Trico interprets them and so the result is that and I did this in my own gameplay experience You sort of cycle through commands and dance in different ways trying to get Trico to listen to you You end up feeling a little crazy uh, and sometimes You know, he really doesn't obey commands. He just doesn't understand them sometimes. He doesn't listen sometimes. Sometimes he doesn't care. And sometimes he just wants to do something else. Uh, It becomes almost sort of comical sometimes. I find myself laughing a lot. And sort of at the end of these long, frustrating periods of waiting, there's often just more frustration. You get over the chasm. Trico finally does what you want him to. And then he gets hungry, lies down, and you have to wait another 10 minutes. There's these sort of two structures of frustration in The Last Guardian. There's waiting, and then there's the awaited thing happening. And both of these things are frustrating in their own ways. So what about intimacy? We've we've talked about frustration a lot, and we've seen intimacy at the margins. So the bloated, precarious jumping moment was sort of reminiscent of chapter one, right? But in order to understand the role of intimacy and frustration here, we have to understand that the way the game constantly insists on the subjectivity of Trico. There's so many moments in this game when you stand in front of Trico, Trico sits down and looks at you and everything is still and you just look at each other. Or you pet Trico and Trico responds to you being petted. There's a way that uh, this sort of process of looking creates a sort of connection. I want to describe one moment in particular. Um, there's a moment when... I violent forces in the game mean that the boy is knocked out and he can't wake up. Now, throughout the game, you many times have to wake up the boy with controls on your controller. But this time, no matter what you do, the boy won't wake up. And Trico takes the boy's body, nudges him, takes him into the sunlight, nudges him again. It's an almost excruciating 1 minute, 30 second long sequence. And no matter what you or Trico do, the boy will not wake up until finally, at the end of the sequence, Trico puts him in some water and he awakes. In my own play experience, I found this moment deeply upsetting. After playing for hours and finding only frustration in the boy's limited capacity to move, this new frustration of suddenly being unable to move at all expanded into a profound vulnerability that I experienced at once from my own subject position, from the boy's, and from Trico's. In light of Trico's, and at the same time my own, quiet, desperate response to the boy's unconsciousness, I found an intimacy in our collective incapacities. So I think here of Donna Haraway, who talks about staying with the trouble of climate change and environmental destruction in sort of contemporary precarious times. Her, not solution, but the way that she contends with the trouble is to stay with it in, quote, a thick present not as a vanishing pivot between awful or Edenic pasts and apocalyptic or salvific futures, but as mortal critters, entwined in myriad unfinished configurations of places, times, matters, and meanings. For Haraway, species interdependence is the name of the world in game on earth, and that game must be one of response and respect. That is the play of companion species learning to pay attention. So with these terms, staying with the trouble, and companion species, Haraway traces a model of being with and becoming with that is marked by a temporality, stubbornly and decisively oriented in a present that's thick, slow, difficult, and even painful, which I think is reminiscent of the intimacy of frustration. I think it's in the too long, too tall, sometimes unbearable durations of waiting and experiences of inability that make up The Last Guardian where moments of profound vulnerability and intimacy can be found. So coming from here, my question was, what other intimacies might result from games that force their players to be with imperfection, as vulnerable and as intolerable as that can be? And that brought me to The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Now, to anybody who is even slightly familiar with this game, uh, two sort of problems make themselves immediately clear. First, is that the intimacy of Breath of the Wild isn't anchored to another individual. In Overwatch, we talked about intimacy between Farrah and Mercy, two characters, each played by human players. And in The Last Guardian, we talked about an intimacy between a human and an animal. The intimacy of Breath of the Wild is an intimacy distributed across space. It's not connected to another individual body. So how do you read for that? And second, Breath of the Wild is a huge game. You can easily play for 200 hours and not have done everything in this game. Uh, I could write entire essays about animal photography, about cooking in this game, which are tiny mini-games that you don't even really have to participate in to do very well in the game. So, it's overwhelming even to think about writing about this game, which meant that I had two sets of questions going forward. First, what happens to intimacy when it becomes distributed across space in this way? And second, what's intimate about being overwhelmed? What does it mean to be overwhelmed? And what does it mean that my critical engagement in the game is also overwhelming? I want to define overwhelmedness here. I think of overwhelmedness as a series of encounters that, not individually, but in aggregate and their multiplicity, create a sense of accumulating tension, anxiety, and smallness. Overwhelmedness can dissipate for a time, for example, in a moment of calm and it can be evaded or postponed, but it can't be fully resolved. But it has to be contended with until it subsides. When I think of over, overwhelmingness in terms of affect, I might describe it as an overabundance of affects. So an overabundance of ways to affect and being affected, and also a kind of encounter with how many things you can do, how many things can be done to you. And I think of sort of two forms of overwhelmingness in Breath of the Wild. First, I think of rising tension. Now, anybody who's played this game will think this is a pretty funny GIF. Claudia? Uh, (laughs) um, In this GIF, uh, Link is trying to ride a pot lid down a hill. The pot lid breaks, he falls, rolls over, and then slowly dies. Uh, Game over. this is sort of not any one thing that's a problem, but it's the series of things in aggregate that sort of accumulate to become a problem. The rolling down the hill, the potlid breaking, the weird decision to ride on a potlid down a hill in the first place. <laughs> um, I experienced something rather similar in terms of combat when I played Front of the Wild. I'll describe it briefly. Walking through a cave, I see a few lightning bats, as you do in this game. Um, bats indeed with the magical power of lightning. So I take out my bow and arrow, I kill a couple, but I run out of arrows. So I decide I'm going to switch to a spear, which is a long weapon that will let me kill the bats and get through the cave safely. But as I'm switching to the spear and aiming it, one sort of angles around, and gets me in the side, shocking me. When you're shocked by lightning, you drop whatever you're holding. So I drop the spear, the spear rolls down the hill. Now I am one less a spear. I grab a sword, but The sword is shorter, and I'm not used to the range of the sword, which means that another bat gets to me, shocks me, I drop the sword, the sword also rolls down, I don't know how many weapons I have left now, I think it's a torch and a leaf, so uh, my health is low, my healing supplies are limited, I decide to book it out of there, which means that I sprint and run, but when you sprint in this game you use up stamina, and so I'm running, I run out of stamina, and I run right into another nest of monsters. And, you know, what happened next? I I died. Uh, This is pretty typical. It's not one thing in these sort of situations, Breath of the Wild, but it's the way that these situations get more and more progressively complicated. Um, It's the sort of problems in aggregate that become what you have to deal with. And this is also an issue that I think of with the number of things you can do with the world and how you sort of describe your engagement with the world. When I talked to my friends about this game in preparation for writing the chapter, it was really interesting to me that so many of them, when they were asked to describe what they liked about this game, described all the individual things you can do. They would say, oh, well, I like, you know, you you can cook and stuff, and like, there's all these different fruits, and look at the animals, but As they described more and more things, they became more and more overwhelmed, and it was difficult for them to explain exactly what, in total, made them like the game, other than through all of these sort of little, individual stories and moments. And this sort of exerts a force during gameplay as well. You become surprised suddenly in a lightning storm as you realize that the metallic items equipped on your back Conduct electricity, making you vulnerable to being struck by lightning. Lightning's been a real problem for me in this game. (laughs) Uh, um, Or suddenly you realize that enemies can interact with each other, uh, or a giant enemy can throw a smaller enemy at you. It's a sort of constantly surprising process of discovering that things can interact in ways that you didn't expect. I think of this as similar to the intimacy of frustration in that you become increasingly aware of the capacities of your body, but unlike the sort of constant frustrations and extended waiting periods of The Last Guardian, this is a sort of slowly accumulating tension that is either dissipated or sort of boiled over. The second structure of being overwhelmed, I think of as a kind of interrupted rhythm. I described this at the beginning of this um, presentation, but I'm gonna describe it again. When Link rides for long enough on his horse, Uh, sort of piano music starts to play in the background that's reminiscent of a galloping rhythm. The horse moves automatically along the path, which means you don't need to control it with your controller for it to know when to turn. Um, And Link and the player sort of lulled into a daze where you feel the sort of rhythms of the horse galloping, the sounds, and you look at the lens as it sort of passes by you. But all of a sudden then the rhythm is disrupted. There are birds that are always sitting on the path that fly away suddenly in front of you, startling you. Monsters can cross the road, can attack you, can knock you off your horse, and sometimes the path gives way very suddenly without warning to a cliff. As soon as the rhythms of horse rider and path come into harmony, they're lost, and Link has to find his way back to the path and to the lost rhythm. So Link's rhythms are sort of overwhelmed by these constant smaller disruptions. I think this is reminiscent of the intimacy of synchronicity in that these rhythms are, these are rhythms that are sort of always under threat. But these rhythms, rather than being created through interactions with another individual, are created through interactions with space. It's disrupted not only by, not just by falling out of step, but by sort of geographic features in a way. The world of Breath of the Wild evades attempts to fall into rhythm with it. But creating your own rhythms also becomes a way of contending with overwhelmingness. And this is where I want to finally talk about cooking. So the process of cooking takes about a minute in this game. You go into your inventory, you hold items, you throw them into a cooking pot outside of the inventory. A little rhythm plays uh, as Link excitedly watches the pot cook. And then at the end, you get, a f- you get the food. It sort of pops out. Link gets very happy. During the sequence, you can't do anything other than sort of angle the camera uh, in different ways to sort of get a sense of the food or get a look at Link's face. I repeated this one minute loop probably about 20 times in a single two-hour play session. There's so much to do in this game, there's so many places you can explore, but I found myself doing the same things over and over and trying them again in these sort of different smaller configurations each time seeing if I could get the best angle at length space. Uh, Collecting things is another rhythm as you run around and um, you press a button to pick up items from the ground and a sort of satisfying sound plays uh that you do over and over and over again animal photography sort of it's the same sort of patterns rhythms of of action i became lulled into the rhythmic movements and slight variations of each loop so what's intimate here is it being overwhelmed or is it the sort of rhythms that you create in order to contend with a sort of overwhelming quality of everything you can And I think it's both. I think that intimacy is working on two levels here. On the one level, the player is made constantly aware, painfully, of their vulnerability through these sort of building tensions and rising in capacities, and also through sudden unexpected disruptions. But at the same time, the player learns to contend with its vulnerability, to stay with it, to make rhythms that make it bearable. There's an intimacy here in being made painfully aware of your vulnerabilities to space, to a world, in orienting yourself within these vulnerabilities, and in finding a way to contend with them. So, there are two things that I've learned from my travels in intimate worlds that I'd like to conclude with today. First, I think that video games have a unique capacity to generate intimate affects. The relationships with space that I described, the frustrations and familiarities with bodily incapacities, synchronous actions with others. These are experiences that video games have the unique capacity to generate. Centering the sort of intimate affects of these games creates space for different players and different pleasures. And centering the formal ways these intimacies are created, hopefully draws attention to the as-yet unrealized potential of games to create intimate affects. Second,
1: I believe that intimacy
0: is a way to contend with precarity. So I've used precarity throughout this thesis as a term, and I've used it with attention to the political context of the word, not only the neoliberal conditions of precarious labor in which we find ourselves, but also more broadly a sort of contemporary affect of precarity as Lauren Berlant and uh, Katie Stewart describe it. I think that one thing that's come up for me throughout this thesis has been how do you contend with a sort of total uncertainty and what does it mean to contend with total uncertainty and here I want to turn to Anand Singh in her book The Mushroom at the End of the World. She describes precarity as life without the promise of stability, as the condition of trouble without end, but also as a state of acknowledgement of our vulnerability to others. Singh tracks the commerce and ecology of matsutake mushrooms in order to conceive of a path towards collaborative survival in precarious times sing Singh, looking at precarity through the, the case of the matsutake mushroom makes it evident that indeterminacy also makes life possible. Donna Haraway also alludes to this in staying with the trouble. For Haraway, staying with the trouble requires making odd kin. That is, we require each other in unexpected combinations and collaborations in hot compost piles. We become with each other or not at all. I think that playing with and working through intimate affects is a way that we can learn to contend with vulnerability, to stay with the trouble of precarity, to try and find a kind of indeterminacy that affords new possibilities in uncertain times. And that's what I'll leave you with. Thank you.
1: So going back to your uh, chapter on Overwatch, when you were talking about a what is it a uh, intimate relationship that was read that way because of a mechanical kind of compatibility, mm-hmm. so, uh, so what is your understanding of uh, other popular sort of ships of characters who either are like who don't have that same kind of mechanical compatibility, especially when they're like diametrically opposed. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that,
0: you know, the way of fans is that they will ship everything. So <laughs> there are um, ships for almost every character in Overwatch, and there's 27 heroes. That's a lot of combinations. Uh, but Farrah and Mercy have always been one of the most popular ships, and I think that it is because of the sort of synchronicity and the way that they are able to be played together, the sort of mechanical resonances. Um, But there's other combinations too. I think that one that's really interesting to me is Genji and Zenyatta. Unlike Mercy, Zenyatta is a support, but he also is stationary and he sort of gives orbs to his teammates so that they can go away and go out of his his visibility and use them. So there's a kind of anchoring where Genji, who's a sort of very mobile hero who moves across the map, hitting people with swords, he's a ninja. Um, <laughs> where he sort of comes back to Zenyatta, gets an orb, and then goes out, and so there's a sort of like anchoring that happens. Um, there's also a really popular shift between Tracer and Widowmaker. Widowmaker is a sniper and Tracer is a sort of flanking hero, and there's a really interesting way that they're, they sort of, are always sort of rat each other out when they're on opposite teams. Widow's always trying to sneak a headshot onto Tracer, which will kill her, whereas Tracer is trying to sort of sneak up. On Widowmaker and and get the drop on her and there's a way that sort of cat and mouse game becomes a kind of intimacy as well. Um, I, I think it'd be really interesting to write about all the different ships in Overwatch actually, but i had so much to focus on with despair and mercy.
1: Yeah, um, I think the intimacy of overwhelmingness is a really interesting like, provocation, and I found it um, interesting how you identify both like the rhythm of like interrupting rhythm and like having to make your own um, in order to cope with that. But um, I'm sort of Guardian and Overwatch, since you have a single relationship, it's something that, um, especially since there's like a definitive progression to the game, either like it's a linear story, or I'm going to play multiple games of Overwatch like so continue this relationship. Um, but for Legend of Zelda, there is like a progression mechanism, you need to begin, and you eventually get so many weapons and Harvard that you're overpowered, and you're not having this feeling of overwhelmness anymore. So I'm curious um, how like this intimacy structure that you have, uh, as you become more overpowered and you're not feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that there's, sure, yeah. So the
0: question was, how does the sort of structure of overwhelmedness change when you accumulate more items and sort of weapons in the game and become more powerful? And that's a really good question. And I think that there's a different kind of overwhelmness that comes from having so many items and so many things that you can do, right? There's so many different um, costumes that you can use in sort of different ways to do different things in the game. Um, there's so many weapons that you encounter in the game that you have to sort of throw out other weapons you don't really have enough space in your inventory to contain all of the things that you could have and it's almost like as the game progresses there's so much so many things to do in so little time that i think it becomes a different sort of form of overwhelm but then there's always the sort of potential that i think goes from being a sort of central component to being more at the edges of still being overwhelmed i had experiences in my own where uh, even though I had maybe 10 hearts in very good armor, I was still getting shot down in extremely bad situations. Right, Like I could find myself in a situation that would just become even too bad for me. And in those situations, it's almost even more overwhelming because even though you've done all this preparation, it doesn't quite work out for you. So that's actually a really interesting question that that I'd like to think about more, the idea of sort of this progression. Lisa? Thanks for a
1: really rich presentation. ability to control motion and, and ultimately think Yeah. So it's kind of one of those macro levels yeah you know, yeah so the question was talking
0: about um, sort of motion and scale as sort of overarching themes in my thesis and if I'd considered that in relation to precarity um, yes I think it is, it's something that I talk a lot more about in the thesis thinking about sort of Um, focusing on these forms of movement um, and also of temporality. I think that, uh, I mean, affect theory likes to focus on these things in general, but I think especially in games where sort of experiences of motion and temporality are the ways that you play the game um, in some sense. Um, I've also been reading a lot, uh, Kristen Whistle has done some really interesting work on verticality and sort of um, these. Increasingly, sort of vertical spaces in contemporary cinema and blockbuster cinema as being sort of connected to um, experiences of like, um, like mobility, economic mobility, or socioeconomic mobility. So that's something that that I've been thinking about a lot. Um,
1: yes. Uh, Rosalind Chapman asks, Just. <laughs> <laughs> your thoughts on the conventional Game Dev wisdom of making companion characters like Alex Vance or Elizabeth Comstock never get in the way of the
0: player? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's... Uh, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, I think that um, companions are really, really interesting figures because at once they sort of, I think, historically have served as a sort of space of interesting representations, either of women or of non-human characters. But on the other hand, that sort of becomes problematic and that the companion characters are there to support you and help you and sometimes nag you. And there's sort of frustrating gender ways that um, companion characters get talked about. And it seems like a way that developers have dealt with that is to make the characters never get in the way, right? So it's like, well, at least this, you know, this woman might be like bothering you and nagging you, but at least she doesn't get harmed. So you don't have to protect her. She can like hide on her own. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's a real problem in game dev. I actually think that one of the most poignant things about The Last Guardian is that Trico gets in the way. There's times when Trico steps on you or knocks you over or doesn't position itself properly, so you try to reach out to catch it, and instead, in that sort of bloated moment I described, you fall down and die. <laughs> uh, and I think it's um, it's obviously frustrating for a lot of players, but I think that there's a sort of poignant intimacy in that, in sort of making you have to deal with something else and accommodate something else. I think that there's a sort of practice in games and game dev that a mentality that you should always have control of the flow of things and you should always have control and not have to sort of wait for other things to happen other than maybe cutscenes. And I think that that's something that we need to move past.
1: So wow. I guess springboarding sort of directly out of the move fast, like, I'm curious how games definitely have this sort of end goal is pretty well defined oftentimes, and it's like hard to dodge that. Um, it's hard to imagine. I think I'm thinking too small, so I'm hoping you can sort of help broaden my my perspective here. With precarity being such an important part of how these worlds become resonant important, and important to how can we... Do a better job of keeping them prepared with end game or like win states? So once you've punched game, like what precarity is left? How do we keep precarity?
0: That's really interesting. Um, yes, so the question was sort of how do we keep precarity given the kind of sort of teleological, I guess, like win states or end states of games? Um, I think that. There's different ways that games do it. I mean, with Overwatch, it never ends. You just play other games, and sort of the flows that you get into or get out of are always sort of contingent and never ending. That's one way. Another way I think that The Last Guardian does it is you don't really have power-ups in that game. The only power-ups you have are maybe being able to sort of communicate a little better with Trico, but you can actually do that stuff from the beginning. It's never sort of that you gain a level and gain armor. Um, And with Zelda, I think that the way that they do it is with a world that is always extremely dangerous, um, and a world in which it's, it continues to be interesting to try things after you've punched Ganon. I know a lot of people who played this game who defeating Ganon became like a chore that they waited to do or that they got over with so they could get back to like cooking and taking pictures of birds. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I think that, I mean, I think that they're that maybe we also need to move beyond the kind of like progression, the moving upwards progression towards this ending where you feel very powerful. Maybe that's a way that we sort of stay with precarity. Um, I think online games have a really interesting space for this, um, but generally I, I look forward to seeing what like developers come up with because <laughs> I think there's a lot of potential. Thank you very much. Thanks so much.